Well, as they take their seats, if you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope that you do, if you'll take it and turn to the book of Matthew, we're going to pick back up in Matthew chapter 14. And while you're turning to Matthew chapter 14, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your many blessings. We thank you most of all for your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you for the forgiveness of sins that's found in him. And Lord, we love you and we worship you. And Lord, we pray that as we sit underneath of your word today, that we would become more like your son. And Father, I pray now especially that you would uh, feed your people. And Lord, I pray that you would use me to do it. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we're in Matthew chapter 14, and a lot has happened in the book of Matthew so far. Um, Jesus has come onto the scene. He's been proclaimed by John the Baptist as, as being the Messiah. And Jesus has been fulfilling prophecies. We've gone through the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus has, has been preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God. And all sorts of miracles have been happening. Jesus has been raising the dead. He's been healing the lame. Uh, he's been healing the blind. And... Everything that was prophesied, everything that the people were supposed to look forward to about the Messiah is, is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And you found now that by this time, Jesus' own people have rejected him. And Jesus' own people have rejected him is, is signaled by the leadership rejecting Jesus Christ. And so Jesus should have come on the scene, fulfill all of these prophecies, and all of the people should have been thrilled to see who he was and what he was doing. But it's just not the case. Jesus bucked the status quo and the people didn't like it. And so now you come to uh, Matthew chapter 14. And there's three different sections in Matthew chapter 14. You have uh, a small snippet of history about King Herod. And then you have the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And then last but not least, again, you have Jesus walking on water. And this Matthew chapter 14 is somewhat of a turning point in the life of the disciples. And hopefully by the end, you'll see why. But we start out in verse 1 of Matthew 14. and says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus. And so just so you know, this is not Herod the Great. This is Herod the Great's son. Herod the Great is the one who was king uh, while Jesus was born. And he's the one who had all of the children under three killed. And so if your father was responsible for killing all of the people under three, you can imagine that when you take over as king, people naturally don't like you either. And so this Herod the Tetrarch, Tetrarch means a fourth. And so it was normal that... Um, Sometimes kingdoms would be broken up into four pieces and you'd put a ruler over each one. And so technically he's ruler of a fourth, but the, in reality, uh, Herod is a very insignificant king in the Roman Empire. And so here you have Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. And that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. For when Herod had John arrested... He bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they were regard, because they regarded John as a prophet. And so hopefully you remember a couple weeks ago, John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus and they ask Jesus, are you the one who, or are you, or is there one to come after you? And Jesus comforts his disciples and says, tell John this, I've healed the sick, I've, I've raised the dead, the, the blind can see. And so Jesus comforts John's disciples when John is in prison saying, I am the one. Look back at all the prophecies, I'm that guy. So John is in prison when he sends his disciples. And sometime in between then and now, 
Herod has put John the Baptist to death. And listen to this. We pick up again in verse 6. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guest. And he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus. And so you may be reading through Matthew and you go, wow. Okay, a lot of good things have been going on. A lot of preaching about the kingdom of God. A lot of all these miracles are happening. People are are turning to Jesus with all of these things. And then you get to this section, and here's the forerunner to Jesus Christ is in jail, and now his head's cut off, and now his head's on a platter, kind of a ta-da, here it is, and you're just reading it, and it's very gruesome, and you go, why in the world would this make the cut and make it into the book of Matthew? Well, if you remember a week or two ago, Jesus has been teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God, and he's preached a a sermon about the seeds that fall on different types of soil. And so within this story, excuse me, within this chapter and in the chapters to come, you're going to be given illustrations of all of the different types of soil that Jesus talks about in the parable. Some falls on the road, and the birds of the air come and eat it. Some falls in rocky places, and it looks like it sprouts up, but then because of the temptations of the world, it goes away. And you're going to find that this is very much like Herod. So Herod has a respect for John, right? Herod keeps John alive because of the fear of the people. But then he makes an oath to this young lady who who dances seductively before him that he'll give her whatever she wants. And she says, I want John's head on a platter. And so Herod buckles. And he buckles because of his pride. And he buckles because of his reputation. And his pride and his reputation keep him from being the man that he needs to be. And when all of that is on the line, because of his dinner guest and because of the oath that he made, he sends for John to be killed. Brothers and sisters, sometimes, you ever seen the movie Top Gun, Maverick? Sometimes your mouth writes checks your body can't cash. Herod, sometimes because of our egos get in the way. We do things that shouldn't ever be done. And so you move on and you realize in the midst of this parable that John the Baptist was the same person when he was in the wilderness as he was before the king. And you're going to find that this guy, Herod, is pretty interested in the things that are going on out in the community. Herod, for the most part, is known as a very pompous, a very uh, rich, egotistical man who wants what he wants, lives a very lavish lifestyle. But when he hears about John, he sends for John, obviously. You don't just walk up to the king, so he must have sent for John at some point. And when John the Baptist stands before Herod, he tells Herod, hey, thanks for coming. Thanks for allowing me to come. Thanks for this elaborate party. He doesn't say any of that. He's very firm with the king, and he tells him, listen, this woman you're married to, you should not be married to. Because you see, this was an incestuous relationship where she left her husband to be with him. And John the Baptist says, this should not be. And you find out more in this parable that John continued to say that. He didn't just say it one time and then let it go. And so you have John the Baptist being proven more of a man of God because he confronts sin and he doesn't let it go regardless of the power or authority that the person has. So, John the Baptist is a pretty pretty good role model at this point. So, 
Herod has him killed. And in verse 13, you pick up and it says, Now when Jesus heard about John, this is after the disciples came and told him, when Jesus heard about John, verse 13, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. This is normal. Jesus is forerunner. Jesus' friend, presumably, a guy he cared a lot about, has been killed. And so what's he going to do? He's going to go to a place where nobody's around and he's going to grieve for his friend. You guys have experienced people dying before that you're close to. And sometimes what you just want is to go away where nobody is. And he says, so he withdrew from there to a boat to a secluded place. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. So if you read the other accounts of this Jesus feeding the 5,000, you find that Jesus sets out in a boat and all of the people around it run around the water to the place where Jesus is. And so Jesus presumably has gone to get away in the boat and when he shows up on the shore it's like oh great great so sometimes you ever been on a trip somewhere you've ever i just can't wait to get home i can't wait to get away from everything and your house is full of people ever been there jesus then it says verse 14 when he went ashore he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them And so you find, if you read the other gospel accounts too, and this is one of the only stories that's in all four of the gospels. It's that important of a story. And so presumably they show up sometime in the morning, sometime mid-morning. They pull a boat up to the shore, however that works in their day with wooden boats. And he sees the crowds and he's tired and his friend is dead and he wants to be alone. But the scripture says that Jesus has compassion on them. And you find in some of the other accounts, like in John and Mark, that when Jesus pulls up on the shore, he's having a conversation with Philip. And he says, Philip, how are we going to feed all these people? And so in the morning, Jesus kind of plants this seed that we have to take care of these people. And here it says that when he pulls up to the shore, he has compassion on them. The other uh, stories of this says that he had compassion on them because when he saw them, they were like sheep without a shepherd. So if you've ever seen sheep without a shepherd, they just wander to and fro and they're lost and capable of taking care of themselves. And so even though Jesus is tired, he's exhausted and his friend is dead, he pulls up to the shore. He sees all of these people and he's not overcome with anger and selfishness and just pulls away, but he has compassion on them because they are worse off than they should be. And if you've ever been to a funeral, sometimes you feel just as bad for the family as you do everyone else at the funeral because you know that many people at a funeral are without Christ. And you have compassion on the whole group because you know if they were in the same shape as the person that you're burying, they would be in hell. And they are sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus knows that their spiritual condition is in dire need. And so he heals their sick, the end of verse 14. And if you read the other accounts, you find that he teaches and preaches about the kingdom of God. And so he shares the gospel with the crowd and what it takes for them to enter into the kingdom of God. Then in verse 15, the story continues. It says, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate and the hour is already late. So send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. And so if you remember, Jesus said to Philip early on, how are we going to feed these people? And Philip and the disciples have obviously been thinking about it. And so now Jesus says, it's time to feed the people. What do we do? And Philip says, yep, we've been thinking about this. Send them away so they can go eat. That's what we're going to do. We don't have food here. Get rid of the crowd. Send them away so they can go eat. And Jesus says to them in verse 16, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Hmm. This, this wasn't in the plan. 
If you read the other accounts, Philip says, Jesus, Philip must have been a numbers guy. Philip would have been a good deacon. He's a good numbers guy. He says, Jesus, 200 days worth of wages isn't enough to feed all these people. And even if we had 200 days worth of wages, we don't have access to get any of this food. And if you're wondering how much food they would have needed, the scripture says later that there's 5,000 men who eat. And so if each man took a woman with him, you're up to 10,000. And if each family, and families had many children at this time, if each family has two kids, or if maybe a man doesn't go and you have a group of women who go to see Jesus, the estimates, conservative estimates, are about 20,000 people are here that Jesus has just told his disciples to feed. And so you think, okay, how many is 20,000 people? Well, if you've ever been to the RBC Center to watch a basketball game, watch NC State play, that stadium holds 19,772 people. If you're not spiritual enough to get into NC State Stadium and you watch games at the Dean Smith Arena, the Dean Smith Arena holds 21,750 So you go, well, why does the Dean Smith Arena hold more people than the NC State Stadium? So you go to the scriptures, as you always do, and you read that broad is the path that leads to destruction. And you can't can't argue with the scriptures. It's just what it says. Anyways, whoever said that's the first amen I've ever gotten because I don't recognize that voice. Anyways. So you're looking at Jesus being in the midst of a basketball stadium full of people. So at halftime or whatever's going on, if nobody went and got drinks, nobody got food, if everybody stayed in their seats and the RBC Center is packed out, that's how many Jesus looks at 12 of his guys and says, you feed them. And you're looking at them like, Jesus and... In about 2,000 years, there's going to be basketball stadiums. And there's not even enough hot dogs at the basketball stadium to feed all of these people. And you want us with zero resources to feed the people? And so what do they do? Verse 17. They said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. And so the disciples obviously had been looking around for food because... He's early on. He's told Philip, we need to feed these people. And so they say, hey, look, all we've got is five loaves and two fish. What do we do? And so let's just say the disciples are here at the pulpit and Jesus is down there. And he looks at them and says, what do you have? And they say, well, this is, this is all we have, five loaves and two fish. And five loaves and two fish wouldn't have been enough to feed the 12 disciples or Jesus. Okay? Because this is a meal from one boy who had a good mama who sent him with lunch. And so kind of a mental picture that you get is that the disciples are standing in front of the creator of the world and they look to themselves and they said, we can't do it. This is all we have. It would have been like somebody standing with Niagara Falls behind them saying, we don't, we don't have any more water, Jesus. What do we do? And an endless resource is behind you and you're not even turning around to access it. That's the same way it is with Jesus. And so Jesus says, bring them here to me. And so he has the disciples bring the fish to him. And I want to read a small passage from this book. This is a a paragraph that I couldn't paraphrase. It's good. And so this is on the comment, bring them here to me. It says, no doubt with sadness in his eyes, Jesus said, bring them here to me. Referring to the loaves and fish. He had to tell the disciples to do what by this time should have been second nature to them. He was saying, in effect, I knew that you did not have sufficient food or money to feed the people, and I knew that you had no way of getting it. I never expected you to feed them from your own resources or by your own power. In asking you to feed them, I was asking you to trust me. 
without having to tell you, I was giving you the opportunity to bring me what little you had and trust me for the rest. Ever been there? This is, this is the Christian walk. We follow a Savior who asks us to do incredible things, knowing that we have zero resources or power to do it, only so that we go to Him and ask Him for help. That's the point of this story. Jesus wants His disciples to not worry about how little they have, but He wants the disciples to know that no matter how little you have, you come to Me and everything is going to be provided. And so then you find in verse 19, ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. And that word satisfied is the same word that is used of an animal when it goes to a feeding trough and it eats until it's not done with the food, but it eats until it doesn't want to eat anymore and it leaves satisfied. It's gone and it's had everything that it wants and then it leaves. And that same word is used in the Beatitudes when Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It's the same word that's used throughout here and the same imagery is, is meant to tie together. And so then the disciples, in the middle of verse 20, they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. And so the disciples start out with five loaves and two fish, and it's not even enough to feed one of them. And they do the will of the Father with nothing. The Father provides everything needed for the whole crowd. And then when the whole gambit is over, they pick up everything that's left, and there's enough left for each of them. Even if he would have only supplied enough out of five loaves and two fish for the disciples to eat, that would have been a miracle in and of itself. But Jesus, with pinpoint accuracy, and some of you folks on the kitchen committee can appreciate this, he has 20,000 people show up unexpectedly, and he serves every single one of them till they're satisfied and has enough left over to feed the staff. All of you ladies have to be able to appreciate that. Even if he went to Sam's Club and bought all the food, that's a miracle in and of itself. Because you would need dump trucks full of food to feed 20,000 people. And so they pick up all of his leftover of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. And then you learn in verse 21, there were about 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. If you read the other accounts of this parable excuse me, of this uh, story, you find that at this point, once he feeds the crowd, after they eat, and once they finish up their after-dinner conversation would have been something like, we need to make him our king right now. And so Jesus says that he perceived that the people wanted to take him and make him king by force. And so what does Jesus do next? Jesus knows now is not the time to make me king. I'm going to be king, but not their way. And so verse 22 picks up and says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And so you go, hmm. So he makes his disciples get into the boat. And you say, well, why does he make his disciples get into the boat? Well, if you're following this guy who's, who's the Messiah, who's going to be king, and all of the prophecies point to him, and there's 20,000 people who want to make him king right now, boy, it'd be real tempting to jump right in and go, Jesus, now's the time. And Jesus, just to eliminate all of that, he sends them away to the other side. Get in the boat and go. I'll take care of the crowd myself. Send the disciples away. Then he sends the crowd away. Verse 23. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. 
The crowds are gone. He's gone up to the mountain to pray by himself. Verse 24, but the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And so this is verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So he sends them away in the evening. And during the fourth watch, this is about nine hours later, just before dawn, Jesus shows up walking on the water to the boat. Then it says, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, verse 26, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage. It is I don't be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. And so Peter is somebody that we all give a hard time to. Peter says some of the most boneheaded stuff in scripture and it's easy to give him a bad rap. Now, Peter's going to get out of the boat, and you know the rest of the story. He's going to end up sinking. But listen to this. Peter realizes Peter's motives are usually good. Like the one times that Peter's motives are bad are that when he cuts the soldier's ear off. Okay, those are bad motives if you're swinging to cut somebody's head off. But every other time, his motives seem really good. And so he says, Jesus, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And so Peter, give him credit for this. He realizes that he need not step out in faith if God isn't calling him to. And so this is a really good principle that is incredibly difficult to learn as a pastor. There's a fine line between stepping out in faith and being foolish. If you step out in faith because God has called you to do something, no problems. It's a, it's a surefire bet. If you think you're stepping out on faith and God hasn't called you to do something, now you're into the realm of utter foolishness because you're doing what you want to do. And so there's a, there's a ton of prayer that goes into this whole decision-making thing as a pastor. Now, so Peter says, okay, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. And he says, come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked toward Jesus on the water. And he realizes, Peter does, that it's safer to be out of the boat on the water with Jesus than in the boat without Jesus. With me? And so if you're in the boat just because everybody else is in the boat, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a safe place to be. It could be that Jesus is in the midst of the storm walking on the water and he wants you to get out of the boat and come where he is because it's safer to be out of the boat with Jesus than in the boat with everybody else. Because the boat could sink. But Jesus, through the whole midst of this story, Jesus never sinks. As a matter of fact, what happens is that immediately, excuse me, but seeing the wind, verse 30... Peter became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And so Peter starts to sink when he gets out of the boat. But what saves him is that he calls out to the Lord on the water and the Lord immediately reaches out his hand and took hold of him and said, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And so I had a really good time thinking about this verse this week. You of little faith, why did you doubt? Okay, let's just be Peter for a minute and let's just be in the flesh, right? Let's just pretend that we're not talking to the creator of the universe. And so you're Peter and you're crying out, Lord, save me. Jesus saves you. And then he says, why did you doubt? Well, first of all, Jesus, I'm drowning. Second of all, Jesus, I've been rowing this stinking boat for nine hours And I've been rowing this boat through a storm. And the only reason I got into this boat and the only reason a storm came up is because you told me to get into the boat. 
And on top of that, I'm drenched. And then you told me to came, come to you on the water. And now when I listened to you and came to you on the water, I started to sink and I was afraid I was going to drown. How's that? How's that for little faith? You ever been there? You ever been asked to do something by the Lord? And it just seems like one thing after another, one thing after another, one thing after another. If you haven't, I would be very, very cautious thinking that you're someone who walks on water where you may just be someone who stays in the boat. Because water walking as a Christian is dangerous. It makes you tired. It leads to frustration. It leads to doubt. And it leads you to putting your hands up in the air and saying, Lord, save me. But in the midst of all of that, it's the absolute safest place you can be because the Lord is out on the water, not in the boat. And so Peter walks on water. Peter comes to Jesus and Peter passes this water walking test. What did they do in the last story? Jesus asked them to do something fantastic. And they looked around and they said, well, we can't do it. We don't have what it takes to do it. And then instead of taking the little bit they had and bringing it to Jesus to do a miracle with it, they did nothing. Now, Peter recognizes who Jesus is. And he, he walks to Jesus on the water. And when he fails, what does he do? Does he jump back and try to leap back into the boat? No, not this time. Now, Peter has his eyes fixed on Jesus and he reaches out to Jesus for help instead of looking to his own resources for help. This is a really big deal and this is a huge turning point in Scripture for who the disciples realize Jesus is. Now it says in verse 32, when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And listen to this. This is the first time this happens in Scripture. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly... God's son. And so because of these two miracles taking place back to back, this is a huge day for the disciples because they realize exactly who Jesus Christ is. And he is God's son and they worship him, which is what he's after anyways. Then it says, when the men of that place recognized him, excuse me, verse 34, when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and the men of that place recognized him. They sent word into all the surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. And they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were cured. And so after these two parables, the disciples realized exactly who Jesus is. And you're going to find two chapters later, Jesus is going to say, who do the people say I am? Some say John the Baptist. Herod said that. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're um, Elijah. The people say all of these things. And he looks at Peter and he says, who do you say I am? And he's going to say, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And it's because Jesus walked him through these two, through these two stories and through this day's worth of events. And so Peter was looking and the disciples were looking at immeasurable odds. At things that could not be tackled. And they were, they were brought through a storm. They were, they were sinking in the water. And Jesus brought them along through all of that. And none of it was an accident. It was exactly where Christ wanted them to be. Jesus knew that there was going to be a storm. Jesus knew that they weren't going to be able to feed the people. And Jesus knew that he was going to feed the people. And Jesus knew that he was going to come out to them on the water. And he walks them through all of this because he wants them to be spiritually strong. And you can't 
be spiritually strong if your faith never gets exercised. You're never going to win a weightlifting competition if you don't start lifting heavy weights. You're never going to be a heavyweight Christian, right? Somebody who fights in the big battles if your faith isn't tested and you come out on the other end. It doesn't mean that you have to come out satisfactory. It doesn't mean that you have to excel the whole time, but it means you have to try. There may be times where you get neck deep in following Christ. You have no idea what to do and you cry out, Lord, save me. If you do that, you pass the test. But if you run back to all the other vices that the Lord has to offer, if you run back to your old way of life, you fail the test every single time. You see, Christ wants to teach you a lesson. And that lesson is even though you can't do the things that he wants you to do always, he supplies the strength and he supplies everything that you need to succeed. And so now we're going to come to the Lord's table. And this is a time for us to examine our life. This is a time for us to do some self-reflection. And in line with these passages, I want to read out of 1 Corinthians, like we do just about every time we go to the Lord's table. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Listen to this about the Lord's table. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. And so I want to tell you a a brief story about how I take the, the passage from today and how I take this and how that works itself out in real life, in my life. I always preach to you whenever the Bible says it about repentance, repentance, repentance. And I have things in my life, just like you have in your life, that are in need of daily repentance. And so... I read in the scriptures that God disciplines those who he loves. And I read in the scriptures where it says that if we eat this, this cup and and eat, if we eat the bread and drink the cup in an unworthy manner, that some people have died because they did it in an unworthy manner. That's the scripture saying it, not me. And so sometimes when bad things happen in life, sometimes when life just piles up, I don't have to name anything specific, but when bad things are going on. And I go, wow, what is going on here? Is this judgment from the Lord? When I get alone with the Lord, I find myself going through self-reflection. And so when bad things happen, my first gut reaction is, is there something in my life that I need to repent of? Is this, is whatever's going on, God's judgment in my life? And so that leads me to naturally reflect on life. And when your son's in the hospital with appendicitis... And people come to you with all these hopeful stories about how their children have died from appendicitis. You go, wow, Lord, is this, is this some sort of judgment? Maybe this is just naturally how your mind thinks. And when someone's life is on the line, it causes you to do some real good self-reflection. And so that brings you to repenting of things that maybe you wouldn't normally repent of. I'm not talking about huge stuff here, okay? I'm just talking about daily things that we need to be repentant of in our lives. And so the joy of doing that, the joy of doing that is when you live a life of repentance and you're reflecting daily on your life and you're ridding your life of sin, that means when you find yourself out on the water and you start to sink, 
It's not because of your sin that you're sinking. It's not because of God's judgment on your life that you're sinking. But you sinking is part of God's plan for you. And you can be safe knowing that your life is free from sin as much as you know. And God has got you exactly where he wants you. You go, well, that's dumb. What benefit is that? The benefit is that it brings so much peace and comfort that things aren't happening to you just haphazardly. Things aren't happening to you because God is upset with you. But things are happening and God is walking you through something. And whatever happens, you can be confident and comforted knowing that whatever you're going through and however it works out isn't because of anything you've done wrong. But it's because that's where God wants to walk you through. And he's right there with you. And so hopefully that makes sense. And hopefully that leads you to, as we come to this table, it leads you to self-reflection. And so uh, I'm going to close this in prayer. And then the deacons are going to come and we'll prepare the table. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the miracles that he's performed. And Father, we thank you that when you call us to get out of the boat... When you call us to live life on the edge for the sake of furthering the gospel. Lord, we thank you that you are right there with us to save us if we fall. Lord, I pray for our church that we would be a church who doesn't just stay in the boat because it's a place of safety. But that we would be a people who go and we walk to you wherever you are. Father, I pray if there's anyone here who's never put their faith in you, that today would be the day that they put their faith in you. That they would believe that you died on the cross to save them of their sins and that you raised from the dead on the third day so that they could have eternal life. And Father, I pray that as we prepare this table that we would all reflect on our lives, rid our lives of any sin so that we can partake of the table in a worthy manner. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. At this time, I'm going to ask Randy to lead us in a prayer for the bread. And after he closes in prayer for the bread, I'll read a scripture and we'll take the bread together. Amen. The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same thing with the cup. Milton is going to lead us in a prayer for the cup. I will uh, share a brief word in a scripture. And then we'll take the cup together. Milton, if you'll lead us in prayer. Amen. If you get to the book of Revelation and you've been reading through the scriptures that I preached on today and you may think, I'm sinking, I'm sinking and I'm crying out to the Lord and I just don't feel like I can overcome whatever life is bringing during this season of life. You get to the book of Revelation and unspeakable evils are happening. There are people being martyred for Christ left and right. And it says that they overcame by the blood of the Lamb. And so if you're sinking and you need help through whatever season of life you're going through, help is found in the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no other place that we get hope from. 
And you go, well, I don't understand how that works. I don't understand how the blood of a guy killed 2,000 years ago helps me through anything. I would love to share with you more in depth about how he helps and fixes everything, not just some things. And so the scripture says, in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often you drink it in remembrance of me. Drink the cup. We are going to close in song, so if you would stand and and join with us in song. And after we close with our song, I will dismiss us with a prayer. Sisters, it's a joy to be with you again as always. I uh, counted it an honor and a privilege to be a part of your family. And uh, whether you realize it or not, uh, this July today or last Sunday, I think, makes two years with us being together. And so it's been uh, good for me. Hopefully it's been good for you too. And uh, having the time of my life. I uh, love you guys. Care about all of you more than you could ever imagine. Hopefully, uh, if you want to have more information about the Creation Museum, you'll stick around uh, for a meeting that's going to take place right here. And then hopefully you will uh, be in prayer this week for our Vacation Bible School. And hopefully you'll also support us in coming out next Sunday, or excuse me, this Sunday evening, so that we can get the word out uh, and invite even more kids to reach them with the gospel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And as we finish out the service, uh, I'm going to ask Dr. Tarkington if you would close us. Father, we do thank you.